pursue your purpose, speak your truth, deal with adult bullies, cope with failure, live beyond fear, establish values, set boundaries, move past trauma. These are all the themes in my Amazon bestseller, The Smart Girls Handbook. Tribers get in close. For 15 years, I have been searching for a book that didn't exist. So I am thrilled to share that I decided to write it. The Smart Girls Handbook is available to buy now from wherever you get your books and also in Canada, the United States of America, New Zealand and Australia. Everything we do is a response to something you have asked for and girl, have you been begging me for a book for years? Who is it for you? The reviews are outstanding. The press has been phenomenal and I am overwhelmed by the amazing support it has had already. This isn't my book, but our book. I realised after my talks around the world, women would be queuing for hours just to ask me one question. I didn't want them to just walk away, but to have a tangible source to have forever. And this is it. This is refreshing, never before read content that will inspire, motivate, empower, inform and entertain you. It's full of my personal development tips that have got me living as my most authentic and highest self, literally glowing from within. My most vulnerable moments and hilarious stories that will resonate with you. The Smart Girls Handbook is a celebration of womanhood and the book missing from your library. So grab your copy today, tag me on Instagram at smartgirltribe and I will send you an exclusive gift just to say thank you. Jess Baker is a psychologist and the author of The Super Helper Syndrome. Jess is an expert in taming the inner critic, that inner voice inside us telling us we are not smart, talented, worthy, good, funny or attractive enough. In this episode, Jess shares the groundbreaking ways you can silence your inner critic, ways I had never even heard of before. And we also get into childhood messaging. When does your inner critic develop? How to set boundaries with people who trigger your inner critic? How to combat imposter syndrome? How to change our perception of others? The different types of inner critic? And a whole lot more. Head to the show notes for free printables and let me know as well what you think of this episode over on Insta at Smart Girl Tribe. Hi Jess, thank you so much for coming on to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast. To begin, I would love to know what exactly is your inner critic? Thank you so much for having me, Scarlett. It's great to be here. I love talking about the subject. Let's take it a step back uh, to explain what the inner critic is. Um, first of all, I'll explain how our thoughts tend to work and how our brain is wired to protect us. So if you cast, um, well, if, kind of, if you imagine tens of thousands of years ago, our ancestors were wandering the wilderness. They might have come across something like a cave bear. And in that moment, they don't have time to think, oh, there's a cave bear. It's mighty big. It's mighty hairy. A bit scary. It might come and eat me. What's actually happened within milliseconds of seeing this real life actual threat is that there are a number of different um, neural circuits that have been activated in the brain that send signals to the body to prepare for what we call and what you've probably heard of as fight or flight. So this actual threat sets off this, um, these processes which are really useful and which helped our ancestors stay alive and which, you know, if you were just about to cross the road, and you were aware of a motorbike speeding around the corner that you hadn't seen in time, your body naturally sends you back onto the pavement into safety. But what's, and you don't have time to think, oh look, there's a motorbike, it's coming at me rather fast. And if you did, bam, you know, you'd be dead. So what happens these days, however, is that the brain seems to act 
in the same way. Like these, this whole alarm signal or a warning system goes off when it's perceived threat, like your boss calling you or emailing you to say, can we have a chat before? Or a client calling and you're immediately thinking, what have I done wrong? Or they're, they're, they're going to complain or what could they be upset about? And so that's the, the inner critic in action in a way. So it's no longer, it's our brain trying to protect us, but actually in the 21st century when so much information is, is being thrown our way, we don't have the time to think it through and we don't necessarily take the time to think it through rationally. We react. And if you're already feeling underconfident or anxious or worried about something in your life, that's going to make you even more susceptible to this overreaction. And what exactly is then the role of an inner critic? Is it there to protect us? You could argue that it stems from, from this. Um, but what seems to happen now, and the way, another way of describing it is to say, look, we have thousands of thoughts a day. Some of those are really helpful. Like, don't forget to pick up the dry cleaning or, or I must remember to phone my friend, it's her birthday. Um, and some of those are unhelpful which might be the worry thoughts or feeling anxious or you're worried about a deadline or something you haven't done yet. And to most of us, when life is going well, you know, those unhelpful thoughts might play a, a miniature role and they might just be there to remind us and to say, oh yeah, that's that thing I haven't done. But what can happen and this is where I think it turns into the what I call the inner critic at this stage is, is when it kind of it begins to control your thoughts. It begins to be the only thing you think about. And what happens, Scarlett, is that as a result of having that thought, you don't just go off and do it. You think, oh, yeah, okay, right, I'll get in the car and go and collect the dry cleaning, or oh, I'll text that friend quickly and say, oh, you know, I'd love to speak to you much later on tonight, blah, blah, blah. Um, it sets off um, other negative thoughts. And so suddenly the inner critic can be... Um, even louder or even more dominant in our lives. So it might have started with, oh, I've got this deadline. I'm worried about the deadline. I'm worried about, well, what if I don't do a good enough job um, for my boss? What if um, I do such an appallingly bad job that they fire me? What if they fire me and I can't pay my mortgage? And if I can't pay my mortgage or my rent, then I'll be homeless. And if I'm homeless and I won't, you know, my partner will leave me as well. And so suddenly you've got this extraordinarily dramatic role playing out in your head within milliseconds. Um, and your, your body is going to react to that naturally. Physiology is going to change. Your heartbeat is going to increase. Um, the, the, you know, the blood will probably rush from your face and um, make you feel... Uh, shaky or make your palms start going to you know becoming sweaty um, and your voice might change and suddenly you're you're feeling you know mild to extreme anxiety on the back of these thoughts so it's pretty difficult just to pin down exactly what the inner critic is in that way and I think it's different things for so many of us and and we're we're affected by it to different degrees depending on our own propensity for worry or anxiety, um, not necessarily pessimism, because I'm an optimist, yeah, I have a massive inner critic, um, but it's more to do with perhaps 
our desire for approval, our desire to get things right, our desire to do things well. So often, and the irony is, you know, some of my most brilliant coaching clients are um, overachievers, and yet they have the biggest inner critic. You know, so that's it's it's terrible. Um, yeah, it's tragic in that way. It can affect us all to different degrees. What do you think, being the expert, are the most common things our inner critic tells us? It can start with the very, like an, the immediate um, scenario. So if you're facing a, a deadline, an impending deadline, you've got, um, it might be about, am I any good at my job? You know, and you, you've heard of the imposter syndrome, you know, that self-doubt will, will kind of feed itself when it gets larger and larger and you start worrying that even though other people are saying you're doing a really good job, we want to give you a promotion or have you thought about taking on more responsibility, you're stuck in your headspace of, I don't think I'm good enough, I think they're just being nice about me, do they really mean it? Um, maybe they you know, went through a long list of other people who weren't available, now they've come to me and I'm the last choice candidate. Um, so it might be something that's immediate, let's say like a deadline. But then what can happen is that over time and, and with the kind of buildup of worry and anxiety, it can bleed into other aspects of your life. Um, and so, for example, it might be that, well, um, it can be about your appearance. Well, if only I looked like that person or the best version of myself, I would feel more confident. Or um, I've had rosacea, so I have blushed and flushed a hell of a lot in my life. And as a child, it was cute. As a teenager, it looked odd. And I was, you know, always flushed and had a little bit of acne. And I was always embarrassed about that. And so much so that I covered myself in that green makeup um, once when I was working in a, a hotel. And I covered myself in green makeup and then put loads of foundation on it. I did look ill when I turned up for my shift. The, my manager said, "I think you look really ill, Jess. I think you should go home and rest." <laughs> you know, um, but there, so it might be that you have thoughts about your appearance, your ability, your weight, your lifestyle, your money management, your relationships, whether you're a good enough person for this friendship, or it might be some. Yeah. So do you see how it can bleed into all different aspects of your life? Mm -hmm. One thing I would love to know is when and how does the inner critic develop? Because I remember when I was 11, we had to take a quiz in our class and we had to write how confident we were and what we loved most about ourselves. And I can remember all of us girls writing that we all felt super confident and we loved so many aspects about ourselves. But I can categorically say if I were given the same quiz now and if my girlfriends were as well it would be the opposite so does it get worse the inner critic as we get older maybe because we're more exposed to things to the media or is it just maybe because our brain hasn't developed completely yet do you think it gets worse over time it can do um, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that I've and anecdotally really um, Scarlett, you know, as you would say, um, I felt, you know, really confident as a kid, but then growing up, suddenly I realised I wasn't quite meeting certain standards or expectations. So 
Um, if I can just step back a little bit, mm -hmm. I'd like to talk about the ideal self and how this can impact us. And then I would like to talk about childhood messages and how that can impact us too. So if you are confident as a child, you're absolutely right. Um, your, your awareness, I don't know about the younger generation now, because I think, you know, I have a, a nine-year-old niece and she's on TikTok and Instagram, probably very aware, much more aware of others and her impact and, you know, and aware of how one looks and how one could be, how one should be. So, but fundamentally we have, you know, societal norms and, and cultural standards, and this helps to create our own ideal self. Um, psychologists have been talking about this for over a hundred years, Carol, Karen Horney, um, Carl Rogers, uh, you name it. Most psychologists have come up with their own theory of the self. And that what happens is if we imagine our future self and we imagine, let's say, Okay, I'll use me as an example. When I was in my 20s, I imagined having a certain lifestyle, a certain role, a certain job, um, a certain family unit, and a certain income. Okay, so I, ha I had all those images. And then kind of the older you get, the closer you get to this ideal self, you, know, you get to your 30s, you think, okay, well, some of that is happening, some of that isn't really happening. You know, I'm not as... Um, not in the relationship I thought I might be in. I'm not in the. I'm not earning as much money as I hoped I would be in. Because you get to your forties, you realise, okay, well, I, maybe I want three children. I've not met the, the, the partner of my dreams, and that's not going to happen. Or maybe I could freeze my eggs. So we have this ideal self that we're setting ourselves, um, you know, this vision of ourselves in the future, which on the one hand can be really useful and healthy because if we have a vision, then we're working towards it, and we can. You know, we put those behaviours in um, in place. We take certain actions to get towards that. But what can happen psychologically is that by holding this ideal self in our minds as well, we're, it's almost like because we're not there yet, we're constantly, continually reminding ourselves, well, you're not like that yet, are you? You're not good enough. You're substandard. You know, this isn't the salary you're expecting. This isn't the lifestyle you were dreaming of. This isn't the partner of your dreams or, or you don't have the family set up that you, you imagined having. Just you see what I mean? So it, it kind of backfires in a way and it can become more consuming, especially when you couple that with other people's ideal self that may or may not be true, but their, um, their ability to, to communicate that through social media so you see someone, you know, perhaps if you're, you know, you're a young person and, you know, you see the Kardashians, you think, oh, my goodness, my life isn't like anything like that. I'm terrible. I'm not A, B, C or D. And perhaps I never could be. Therefore, I feel really bad about myself. So we're comparing ourselves to our ideal self. And then in the immediate term, we're comparing ourselves to what we see in front of us, whether it's airbrushed images in the media, um, our friends or, or celebrities curated social media profile again probably that's been airbrushed to high heaven um, and we're constantly being reminded that we're not yet the thing that we we want to be mm. no I think that is really insightful and very honest because it's true and I think that we are inundated especially at the moment with self-help content and personal growth content 
to the points where we are almost encouraged to be our ideal selves now as we are and some of those things aren't feasible I know for example that my ideal self if you like my future self I'd like to think will be living abroad in a lake house yes if somebody asked me well would you like that now the answer is no because it wouldn't be feasible for my life now so I do think that we have this tendency to think well I'm not there so it must mean I'm not good enough as I am now and I feel this even physically a few years ago I was very active when I was at university I was very athletic and I was part of I was a part of a lot of different clubs and then when I graduated I stayed the same weight on and off um but I it wasn't regimented I didn't really stick to it but I always had it in my mind oh that was when I looked my best So if I'm not looking like that, it must mean in some way that I have failed. And then in the past year, because I have unintentionally, it was for medical reasons, I needed to change my diet. I'm actually back to what I was. And I can't help but think, how much time must I have wasted thinking I should look like that version of me? Whereas those are so many hours I could have spent doing something else. Absolutely. I know. It is such a waste of time and and it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. You know, this inner critic has has both triggers and it has consequences. And the consequences are exactly to that point, you know, feeling worse about yourself. It's like your inner critic loves loves to argue with itself. It's like mm-hmm. fake news on fake news media. It's like, well, I call it critical FM. I refer to it like your own radio station talking to you about you 24 7 but that isn't a nice thing that's never going to say oh my god Scarlett you're amazing you're brilliant oh I loved it when you did that it's never going to say that it's going to be like oh oh oh, that thing you said ew you know and you know so it it definitely plays um uh it kind of its own role and it's really difficult to switch off it's really difficult to just like I mean I've got books called like conquer your inner critic and that's not or banish your inner critic and I don't think those two things are feasible instead you know I talk about taming it I grew up with very critical parents so even from a young child I was very self-critical very um um, in a lot of need for other people's approval to kind of prove myself the whole time so that's part of my legacy. But taming the inner critic for me has been um, a beautiful process and a fun one as well. You know, although it's a really deep and meaningful and somewhat heavy and negative theme, it can also be really useful, beautiful, playful. Um, so taming the inner critic, what can happen is, I'll step back a bit. Generally, when we have a negative thought, negative experience, or um, something we don't really want in our lives, we strive to get away from that thing. So, and it can be anything from a deadline we're deeply in denial about, or um, a person that we met that we'd rather just like walk across the street and try to avoid. Um, and, 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 there's the endless list of things we would like to avoid. But when that's our, our inner critic, when that's our own thought process, it's actually impossible to avoid it. 
you know, those thoughts will come up in the deepest, darkest, quietest moments. Like when you're at your most vulnerable, let's say 3 a.m. and it's dark and it's quiet. And if you're sleeping next to somebody, they're deep in sleep and having their lovely dreams. And there you are fretting about the thing that probably hasn't happened yet and possibly won't ever happen. But that's your inner critic of the play. You know, your mind likes the drama and your mind will search the drama. Like now I laugh at 3 a.m. because I'll wake up and my mind goes straight to something dramatic, something negative, something critical, something potentially shameful. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that thing again. Seriously, you know, whatever, you know. I can either deal with that tomorrow when I'm awake and I can actually do something about it or that's just my mind looking for drama. Instead of striving to get away from it, the one thing I would say, Scala, is to approach it. And we're actually going to, um, so there's kind of neuroscience behind this is your, your, when you're striving to get away from something, you're denying it, um, you're activating your prefrontal cortex to the right. What we're trying to do now is switch to the approach mindset, which is activating to the left, which, which automatically activates um, the neural processes to help you be more curious, interested, kinder. Ooh. So by taming the inner critic, I absolutely say to everybody, start writing it down, become consciously aware of those silly little thoughts in your head, because that's all they are. And you can decipher the helpful ones and the non-helpful ones. And your critic isn't very creative, so it's probably like to say the same things again and again, and it's always on repeat, and it's probably going to say the same things to you as it does to me. Um, and we're going to get close to this. We're going to get to know it. Write it down. Know how it makes you feel. Know what kind of control it has over your physiology, your mood. Um, if you can, if you're brave enough, then look at your triggers. Are there people in your life that actually act like your, your own loud proud inner critic you know it could be a parent or a teacher or somebody that you maybe ideally somebody you don't ever have to have a relationship with but maybe they are in your life and I can come to that in a second we can talk about boundaries and um and how to manage those conversations but um we're approaching the inner critic we're getting to know it and there are a number of um lovely little things you can do um that help you and one of those things I, I do it in my live workshops is to create a persona for it um, and you can think about what does it sound like? What would it look like it could, if it could come into being? Um, mine is like an angry, grumpy teenage fairy in DM boots sulking on a rock. Okay, and she's right. She's quite cute. I call her Scrutiny Fairy New, and she's she's quite cute. But she's grumpy because I don't listen to her anymore. And I'm like, no, I don't need that in my life. But she's always there. She's part of me. She's part of my psyche. I can't turn her off. I can't banish her or conquer her. But I work with her, you know, and sometimes she'll say like, oh, Jess, there's that thing, there's that podcast you're being interviewed. Oh, oh, you know, are you going to say anything stupid? Probably, you know. And actually, you know, I'll say to her, like, or, or think this, thank you for trying to warn me to try and prevent me from humiliating myself or failing or, or messing up in some way but actually that's not necessary I've done this a of times so I don't mind dropping my words it's not that big a deal you can just be parked so I'll kind of usually in my mind park her on my desk you know or it might be that you've got you know Charlie Chimp playing around in your head and the bigger he gets though I mean I've, I've had a coaching client who had this recently she said it feels more like King Kong in my head you know she kind of made a big arch with her hands 
Um, and so it just feels so overwhelmingly big right now. And I thought, okay, well, what we'll do over the next few sessions is make it smaller and smaller. And eventually she was able to make it to a little cute chimp and put it in a little airtight soundproof jar. And that's what sits on her desk now. Um, so she feels she has control over that in some way. So taming your inner critic, there are a number of different ways to um, to approach it, but that's definitely one of the one of the kind of most fun ways you can um, begin to deal with it. But uh, yeah, so I've got a number of other things on my list. I said I would come back to, unless you have any particular questions about that. I'd, I'd move on to childhood messages next. I think. No, please do. So um, with childhood messages, and I referred to my upbringing. Um, so. I think what can happen in, and this, there's a really good example actually that comes to mind from a, a, just a, a friend of mine who said to me, um, you know, she had a loving parents and a, and a very uh, uh, a loving family and, and a happy childhood. But there was one thing that stuck out to her, stuck out to her for, for all these years. And I think when we had this conversation, she was in her 50s, she said, Jess, you know, every time I go to handwrite, I hear my primary school teacher saying that handwriting is really really messy and mm. in our conversation I said oh tell me more about that and she said actually it wasn't even directed at me it was directed at the kid who, that sat next to me in primary school he had messy handwriting and so we explore this further and I, and I think that's such a great example of how the brain can latch onto messages and so your your inner critic might have been informed by or influenced by someone who you grew up with, whether that's family or teacher or friend or a bully or horrible people as well, your brain latches onto certain things as if it's true. And because over time you begin to repeat that, it feels true. And because we challenge what other people say much more readily than what we say about ourselves, we it becomes part of our self-belief. And therefore, a part of our way of life. Oh, well, it must be true. If my rosacea is embarrassing and I look like an alcoholic at age 16, <laughs> then, oh my goodness, something's very, very wrong with me. And I should be ashamed of that. Mm. And I should hide and I should hide away or I should try and cover it up or, you know, various things that people try and do. So, in these childhood messages can come from anywhere. It have to be um, necessarily even as a child, but over. The years we learn to listen and tune in to feedback and we're told to listen to feedback and sometimes that feedback isn't actually coming from a good place sometimes it's coming from you know a, a negative space from that own person maybe jealousy or or whatever reason that they're giving you negative feedback um that might stick with you again your brain is computing that as some kind of truth well let's hold on to that 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 could be useful in in the in the future um and yeah, so there are a number of different places. And I think one of the things I really would um, urge anyone to do who's working on their own critic is to think about where their, their critical thoughts come from. And then you can see once you've seen it on paper, say, actually, is that my original thought? And if it's not, whose is it? And if it's somebody else's, why were they saying that? Was that useful? Has it been useful? And if so, then maybe it's not a, a critical thought at all. Maybe it's just something I feel um you know has protected me or has made me um uh you know live a certain way or, or act in a certain way so yeah so so childhood messages are a curious one um but I think it comes down to if I may leap into um a kind of solution for that 
is to be once you're aware of it and regardless of where it came from it's almost like we need to learn how to parent ourselves mm. and we need to be the best most loving most understanding most reassuring parent for ourselves um enable to enable us to feel good you know to stop us from seeking it from somewhere else outside ourselves actually we can do that and the wonderful thing and you know this too Scarlett we have the capacity to do that we just need to learn it unfortunately it doesn't come naturally or readily to any of us of course is our inner critic shaped when we are children to please our parents as well I think it can be I think you know if you take an example of a, a helpless baby um, who needs love from its parent in order for the parent to love it because it needs to be fed by that parent that then transforms later on as the child grows up and, um, into seeking approval and wanting that parent to love and approve of it if you if your parents don't readily show you approval, um, and in my own experience, my mother showed me kind of conditional love. If you don't do X, I won't be like this. If you do Y, I'll be nice to you. Then that's a really dangerous game to get caught up in. And it can become a quite toxic relationship with your own headspace. Then when you're saying to yourself, oh, well, if I lose weight, then I'll feel happy. Or if I looked a certain way, I could feel more confident. Um, so yeah, this the sense of looking for approval um, is is a powerful relationship with our with ourselves, and I think it does, in a way, stem from being helpless as children. You know, we rely on like, please love me, <laughs> which can turn as an adult, please like me, or a teenager, or you know, um, and and you've heard of the phrase people pleaser. That's that often stems from seeking approval from others. Yet what we should be doing is approving of ourselves, full stop. I mean, um, I don't know when this will be going live, but I've got a book coming out. And in that book, I talk about self-approval and I explain what it is and why it is and why it's so important to us. And um, I say in the book, you know, if we could just give ourselves, like on a scale of minus 10 to plus 10, right? Most of the time, I think most of us are somewhere between you know, plus three to plus plus six, maybe, you know, seven on a really, really, really good day. But what if, what if just for now, as a thought experiment, you were to give yourself plus 10, Scarlett, mm. plus 10. And then tomorrow morning, it's like, yeah, I'm a plus 10, baby. And then all the way through the day, regardless of what happens, regardless of negative feedback, regardless of other people's opinions and various things that life throws at us, you know what? I'm a plus 10. And that's the kind of level of self-approval we can have. It's for the taking. It's free. But I know immediately. So what, what's your first thought? Just as a little experiment. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think that's a fantastic idea because even discussing it, I can sense in myself, I can feel that already my approach to myself, just hearing those words, has changed. Because it's true. What would I, what would my self-worth look like if I woke up tomorrow and just decided that I'm a plus 10 without thinking, well, I'm a plus 10 if I work out today. 
and if I eat healthily and if I finish all of the house chores and if I check in with my family members, if I'm a perfect daughter or sister or friend, what if I just woke up and decided that I was a plus 10 and already I can feel myself almost getting excited for myself because I haven't approached my self-worth like that. I tend to tie up my self-worth in what I have achieved and my accomplishments, which on the positive side has meant that career-wise, I have accomplished a lot. And as a friend, I make sure that I remember everyone's birthday and everyone gets something. And it has made me a great friend But equally, I've never just been able to sit back and think I am unconditionally enough, just as I am. So I think that's a fantastic idea. I'm going to try it tomorrow or even for the rest of the day. Even today, now, that's right. I think, why not? It's for the taking. It doesn't have to, you know, and often when I say this to coaching clients, oh, that turned me into an arrogant, horrible person. Mm. You know, what if <gasps> and I say honey you're so far from arrogant <laughs> you could never flip that far you mm. really couldn't you know and being a plus 10 in your head it's not I'm not suggesting you go out and tell everyone hey baby I'm a plus 10 mm. you know or post it on social media or whatever this is for you this is just your your little psychological experiment with yourself and I could see the excitement in your face, you know, when you were talking about that. And I was kind of getting goosebumps. I'm like, yeah, why don't we do this? And exactly to your earlier point, you know, when you said you waste so much time worrying about these things. And in fact, one of the things you said, and you've said it a couple of times now that I'd like to expand on as well, if you don't mind, um, is about the should. That mm-hmm. should in your head. Earlier, I mentioned um, psychologist Karen Horney, and she called it the tyranny of the should and it's just perfect because she talks about the inner conflicts and we set these we design our own internal commands if x then y you know I should go to the gym three times and if I haven't gone to the gym three times this week I'm a failure as a human you know I should eat healthy but I had pizza for lunch I should da 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 you know and it's so coming back to how to notice the inner critic listen out for should must ought you know, and and listen out for kind of listening to your body as well. Tune into to how your body's reacting to those thoughts too, because you'll notice that often there will be a, a tensing or a bracing, um, or a you know a, a mild palpitation that might come mm-hmm. with some of those stressful thoughts. You think actually that's not a healthy way to think about it. That's not healthy language to use. No, completely. I completely agree. And I would love to know, is an inner voice louder for some people? And why is that the case? Because as much as I can sit here and talk about my inner critic, I have over the years done a lot of work on myself. And I noticed that in some particular friends of mine, no matter what I say, no matter what books I provide, content I send them, they have an incredibly loud inner critic that doesn't seem to go away and they almost genuinely believe that they're just not enough to the point that they've almost given up they think well I couldn't have a healthy blossoming relationship because I'm not enough or I couldn't have that high flying career as I wanted when I was younger because I just don't work hard enough so who is susceptible to having an inner voice that is almost that loud 
Mm. Um, I'd start with tracing it back to childhood messages. I would then think about the language that was used uh, and try to remember some of the language that was used by parents or teachers. Again, remembering that we'd internalize those, good and bad, mostly bad. Um, and is that, uh, so sometimes I've come across people who have like generational worry, I call, because you know they'll use the word, oh, I worry about that. Oh, I'm a bit worried about that. And then I'll hear their seven-year-old daughter say, oh, mommy, I'm a bit worried about this. And then, but they themselves will say, oh, but my mum was a worrier. Oh, I think grandma was a worrier as well. So you've got the kind of generations of, of, um, of the use of language that's, um, that's passed down the lines. Um, so that's definitely one way of thinking about it. Another thing to be aware of is that generally the inner critic gets louder and prouder when you are stepping outside your comfort zone. So your comfort zone ideally is a space where you feel like super hug, you know, you're in your woolly fluffy socks and you're by the fireside with your coffee and it's all lovely and life's perfect. That's really the case, let's be honest, but, you know, we have a, we have a comfort zone. When you're stepping outside, so even thinking about taking action, um, like I've just massively stepped out of my comfort zone writing this book, um, you're stepping outside your comfort zone when you started the podcast and you've done a number of things. So every time you try something new or you take on a challenge or you're learning something um, or you take on a new role, and again, that's where I hear the imposter syndrome coming up again and again. It's like, well, I haven't done that role before. No, but you know what? Before becoming CEO for the first time, nobody's been a CEO. <laughs> you know, so everybody's learning on the job. And to be aware of what your... Um, your lifestyle and your scenario is and thinking okay well maybe this is just a reaction to not knowing how things are going to pan out and so that's perfectly normal you know it's normal that I should be concerned um slightly worried that things might fail especially if I'm investing money or time into something a business or a challenge um but then you know keeping a check on your inner critic to say Right, well, it's healthy to some extent to have some of these thoughts, but now I'm going to put that to bed. You know, now I'm going to sit my little fairy on her rock and say, it's, you know, you've got there's space and time for you, but now is not that time. What I would rather do is give myself plus 10. And that immediately gives me a sense of excitement. And that means I can take action and move forwards towards attaining that goal. So I think for your friends, you know, it can be lifelong habits of using language. Um, that become, you know, our thoughts then become our limiting self-belief in that way. I'm not good enough for a relationship. or I'm not good enough for that job or I'm not good enough to, I'm never going to earn as much as I really would like to because I don't feel like I, I'm, you know, I have that value. Um, yeah, what do you think about that? Does that relate to your friend's situation? I think it does. I think having known some friends for a long time, it does go back to... I think, to be honest, maybe Jess, everything goes back to our childhoods <laughs> and we need to explore the inner child so much more. And it needs to be less of a taboo subject or something we are ashamed about, you know, mentioning or talking about. Because I think so much of what we go through as adults, how we react to things, how we approach things are inner critic, you know, I have said a couple of times during this podcast episode, I have had a tendency to tie my self-worth up in what I have achieved 
And I can categorically say, I know the moment when that happened. And I remember when I had my first um, exams in school and I had achieved it. It was only three exams. I think I was nine. Um, It was like an A, an A and an A minus. And I cried because I had received an A minus and I thought that no longer meant that I was the good student. So I can pinpoint the moment that it almost not changed, but came out so much more. So I do think everything goes back to our childhoods and the messaging that we are exposed to, whether that be in school or at home. Mm. Something came up then as well, um, to, to look at this from a very different uh, perspective for a moment, especially when, as you said, your friend might be saying, I'm not good enough for this relationship or for the relationship that I really want. Sometimes we hold on to our thoughts, almost our negative thoughts, almost like a protection blanket. Because, you know, if you were to say to that friend, let's call her Katie. Um, hey, Katie, what if you were to think of yourself plus 10? And what if you were to, to shift into a different gear that suddenly meant your actions were like to go on a, um, a dating app to put the word out through your friends to say do you know anyone who's available at the moment or you know any whatever you would do to put in place an action to 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 find people at least to make yourself available Katie might say oh my god that's too scary oh no no thanks no 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 I'm not ready Mm. so in a way this is challenging okay this is challenging to hear from anyone that's ever thought about this for the first time because there's so much resistance to change and there's so much whilst some of us want to develop our self-awareness and become the best version of ourselves it's bloody scary you know but all I say is there's always more shit to uncover I guess there and there always is and so to think about it from a different way you know is Katie protecting herself from even having to look she's protecting herself from potential rejection because she's not even looking she's not making herself available for love So to think about it differently and say, what if, what if you didn't have to find the love of your life within the next three years, but what if you just enjoyed meeting new people in a safe way? So you go for coffee during the day in a public environment or whatever's feasible for you Mm -hmm. and, or, you know, double date or whatever it might be, but you see this as an element of having fun. Mm -hmm. Another aspect of your life where you can just use your leisure time in a nice way. Because the moment you start hanging weight on it, like we, like you said, you know, if X, then Y, you know, it becomes the all-consuming all thing of, I must meet the person of my dreams. You know, therefore, every date matters like it's mm-hmm. the ultimate date, you know, and nothing, if it falls, then I fail. And if it doesn't happen, if it's not this person, I'm never going to find that person, you know, but instead come at it with an approach mindset. Be curious, creative, kind, tender, gentle, and say, take the pressure off. Just go have fun. Because if you're turning up with all this pressure of, okay, I must tell them I want two children and I want them within the next three years because of my body clock and, 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 you know, that's going to scare the hell out of some people and they'll want to run a mile. Mm -hmm. But instead, if you go and say, Look, I don't want anything from you at this stage. All I want is to see whether we get on, whether we can have a laugh, whether we have the same values, whether we share the same perspective. That's all I'm looking for. And then that's a much easier way to proceed with, with things like mm. uh, pursuing 
a relationship or a career um, to take yeah to take that pressure off. What is the difference between our inner critic and imposter syndrome? The inner critic is very much embedded in the imposter syndrome as far as I'm concerned. I mean, obviously I'm a psychologist, so I would say that, you know, your thoughts equal your behavior and the other way around. Um, with the imposter syndrome, it is a very specific uh, state that we can get into. The thoughts are self-doubt, like self-doubt on acid, really. Um, regardless and usually this happens to people who are competent who are getting great reviews feedback at work or from their clients um, who are conscientious so they're always putting going the extra mile um, they're the ones with the imposter syndrome not the actual imposter I'm afraid um, their self-doubt is again in their head it's internal story they're telling themselves I'm not good enough um, but and because they're having the thought I'm not good enough, they're also having the next thought, which is therefore I must prove myself. Why am I why am I trying to prove myself? Because I'm desperately in need of their approval. But hang on a second, they've already given you their approval. They've said you should apply for that promotion or that. No, no, but, but they don't really mean it. So you're discounting their approval, which means you have to continue to strive hard enough or harder. So you just see what I mean? And because you're discounting other people's approval and because you have very little of your own, there's no way you cannot have. And I'd love to say this is like psychological evidence based. It's not it's anecdotal. But I imagine talking with you now, thinking this through, I imagine you can't have the imposter syndrome if you're giving yourself plus 10. Mm -hmm. You know, so it, it is driven by this lack of self-approval and the desire to seek approval from others. And the inner critic is very much embedded in that. You know, you can hear those thoughts play out and those thoughts play out irrationally regardless of the facts, regardless of the evidence. So if I have a, a coaching client and they say, I need help attacking the imposter syndrome, one of the first things I would say to them um, when getting to know them would be say, oh, by the way, and can you send me any reviews you've had at work, you know, some feedback you've had on a piece of, on a project you've been working on or... Um, any um, appraisals that you've had recently, um, just so that I've got that to work with as well. And inevitably, inevitably, Scarlett, they would have had rave reviews from other people at work. You know, so much so their managers are pushing them to take on more responsibility or encouraging them to, to go for this next promotion. But it's it's in their own headspace. That's where the problem lies. But in a good way, that's that's great because I can work with that. You know, we can we can only control what, what happens in our own headspace. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that one of the things that we were going to talk on uh, talk about earlier was kind of other people's criticisms or you know our own boundaries. So um, we can talk about that a little bit more if you want to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, please. I would love to know how can we set boundaries with people who trigger our inner critic. So two-pronged approach, okay, either or, or maybe a bit of both, I would say. And if someone's triggering your inner critic, it might be, it might be that they're vocalizing what your inner critic is already saying, which is really unhelpful, especially if it's untrue, but you've already deciphered for yourself, actually, that's just something they're saying. Now, there's a lot going on here. There's what you're hearing, which then will trigger your own inner critic, which would then start that whole negative cycle of thoughts and feelings and moods and self-doubt and self-criticism. 
there's also something else that we can look at, which is their own inner critic. And we're like, why is that person saying that thing to me? Maybe they're saying it because they're worried about me. You know, if I'm about to say, um, uh, you know, to, to a friend, oh my God, I'm going to be live on this podcast. Oh my God, but what if something terrible, what if you say something really bad? And yeah, my, my inner critic might have already said something like that. And I, but I'd say, but it's unlikely. And if I did, then we could re-record or, you know, there are other ways around that. But all I'm hearing is really her inner critic saying, oh my God, that's the last thing I would want to do. Like I speak on stage, you know, at conferences mm-hmm. and panel discussions and stuff, and I love it. But to other people, that is their worst nightmare. Right? I mean, you, you know, you probably have similar experience. So we choose to do these things and we choose to step outside our own comfort zone. So one way of thinking about it is, is that they're only in a critic, just they're expressing their own worries and concerns of themselves, which then are just gentle ways of showing love really mm-hmm. to us. They're not really being critical. Then there are others who desperately are being critical and if you can't control how much contact you have with them, then you might want to say something along the lines of, now remembering, though, we can't control others. We can only control our reaction to what they say and do. Mm-hmm. So you might be able to say, just bring them a level of awareness and say, look, mum or bestie or whatever, when you say things like that, I feel like it's like a criticism or I feel so it's not like you're you can't say you're making me feel I know that's a phrase that we sometimes use a lot but that's really not very true and I think it's really empowering to remember that other people can't make you feel a certain way you choose mm-hmm. how you respond and you can learn to choose how to respond but the first thing might be to gently bring their awareness because they may have no idea you might say, oh my God, if I'd known that, I would have stopped going on about it. I'm really sorry. Actually, what I'm doing is vocalizing my own worry for you. And I'm trying to just be loving and protective of you. But if they then don't stop <laughs> saying those things and you've given them plenty of opportunities to, to have different conversations, then you can do a couple of other things. You can either make sure you never bring that up again, or if they bring this particular theme up, um, then you can say, do you know what, I'd rather talk about something else. Did you see X on TV last night? Or have you heard from so-and-so? And you can cleverly direct the conversation. And sometimes directing the conversation back onto them is the safest thing to do. Mm-hmm. There are some people you can have this conversation with and some people you can't, obviously, depending on the setting, the setting, whether they're family or whether they're you know, a boss. Um, one of the things I would like to encourage people to do is and be their own psychologist for, for a while. So if you're listening to this podcast, you're thinking, okay, well, what do I do next? Maybe treat um, the various relationships and settings you experience as a kind of psychological lab. They were just observing for a while. You're just going to take notes. You're just going to understand a bit more about when your thoughts occur, why they might occur, um, for the reasons that we've talked about already. And just observe other people's reaction to you as well. And kind of collate all this data and begin to understand, begin to become more consciously aware of what is happening. Mm-hmm. And that will help you perhaps ask the question, why? And if you can't decipher the why for yourself, go back to somebody and say, do you know what? There seems to be the same. Whenever I talk about my business or my new project, 
you always seem to get into kind of worry mode. You know, what's that about? Can we talk about that for a minute? You know, just explore it together. One thing I would love to dive into a little bit deeper is we could wake up and say, you know what, today I'm a plus 10. That's going to be my approach. And then we open social media and we see that Julie is doing really well. And we suddenly think, oh my gosh, okay. I now need to X, Y, or Z. Even maybe subconsciously, we have this thought because we're being subconsciously influenced, if you like, even in a negative way. So is there a way then, Jess, that we can change how we see other people? Because I personally do think our inner critic can develop or get stronger through comparison. So is there a way that we can stop maybe comparing ourselves to others? Oh, juicy question. Um, Is there a way we can stop comparing ourselves to others? I'm not sure what there really is. Um, If you look at evolutionary psychology, you could argue that we need to belong to a group and we're social animals and it's there we get more safety belonging to a group and acceptance because belonging to a group means that we have more support and that we feel loved and Um, a lot of other benefits will come with with being part of that social group too we probably compare ourselves to the people in that group to to assess whether we benchmark or not Mm -hmm. so I don't know whether we can actually stop comparing ourselves but I think there are a couple of things that you might want to do to to help you acknowledge what you're doing and what's really happening here again it's about being self-aware and about being conscious of the thoughts that you're having in order so that you can choose how you respond to those thoughts. So let's say you want to, um, yeah, you open social media and you see so-and-so has done something. You're like, oh, I haven't done that yet. Oh, my God, they've got so many followers. Oh, my God, they've got a brilliant idea for this reel, la, 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 whatever it might be. I haven't done that yet. I'm terrible. Um, notice what you're doing and notice who it's to. And notice whether you're comparing apple for apple like for like because often what we find is that we're comparing ourselves to somebody who is maybe more experienced they are older they are they've had a whole different life story to us and we're not comparing like for like at all and that's not fair what we find when we're comparing ourselves to others it's normally unfair we normally massively overestimate their capability and massively underestimate our own like oh I could never be like that you know mm-hmm. well really maybe we could but if you have a certain mindset then that would help you take action towards being like that but overarching all of this I would say one little activity for somebody would to, to be this could be quite fun and eye-opening as well to get a sheet of paper and brain dump mind map your ideal self in all aspects of your life, so whether that's relationships, significant other, social, family, friends, leisure time, lifestyle, holidays, what does your ideal self look like? Because that's one of the things that's probably going to trigger comparison, um, social comparison, is that this person you've seen on social media has ticked one of your ideal self standards or expectations or a tech box <gasps> like my ideal self okay so I'm 46 but my ideal self is 35 doing a headstand on a mountain at sunrise in Bali okay oh and a size eight okay so 
ticking all of those boxes? No, not right now, honey. Okay, could I ever tick some of those boxes? No, I'm never going to be 35 again. So I have to let go of some of those ideal standards that I, I was once living with, you know, age 20, age 28, age 34. Being 35 and doing headstand in Bali might have been something I could have achieved. It's no longer relevant to me in my life. And in fact, it's quite exciting because I've got other things that are totally on the table now at 46 that weren't on the table back then. So dumping your ideal self on a page and then being very honest with yourself. What is feasible? What isn't feasible? And then asking yourself, how do I want to feel? How do my ideal self want to feel? Mm. And I think this is the most important coaching question one could ever ask oneself. Because if how I want to feel is calm and loved and safe and joyful, what are those things that I've got on my to-do list or my ideal self list? What of any of those are going to help me feel that way? And, you know, doing a headstand, not really, you know, I could do Pilates standing up. I could still feel really good about myself. <laughs> um, being in Bali, okay, it's my spiritual home. But I can be in any warm climate, as long as I'm actually in nature. I don't care how cold or warm it is or, what, or where I am geographically in the world. So, you know, there are things that I can look at my ideal self and say, okay, I can make little adjustments. Mm. And then I realize some of those are at my fingertips already. I can do those things today. I've just spent two hours walking in nature this morning before our call. Mm. You know, it's cold and I'm in Shropshire, <laughs> but it's enlivening, it's, invir- it's invigorating, and it's, it's how I want to feel. Mm. Some, does, does that resonate with you and to what extent does it resonate with you or anyone you think you know oh completely it does resonate with me because I see my ideal self living abroad possibly in Italy because that's where I grew up in a lake house and if I were to really dissect it which I have done previously in another podcast episode it's because of space because being in London you don't feel that, you don't feel space. So when I was really digging into it, because initially I thought, oh, of course, I I would love like a big, really spacious lake house. But then I would ask myself, but why? Why do I want a big, spacious lake house? Why has it got to be near a lake? And it was because of this idea of immensity, that there was space all around me and that it was also very calm because I naturally over the years, especially through the podcast, have explored so many different topics from the inner child to lack of confidence in a critic such as today to the point that I'm on the whole a very calm person and I'm very self-aware whereas a lot of people around me aren't that way inclined which is fine so I've really been able to strip it back and think you know what actually I could achieve that feeling of being in a lake house by doing something else for example Mm -hmm. as you said going for a walk um you know in a field or something so it it resonates a lot Mm. and thinking creatively about what's at your fingertips so maybe you have a friend who lives in a big house well go visit you know um feel that expanse or uh you know airbnb is so popular these days go perhaps you know take yourself off for a few days and go and live in someone else's (laughs) environment you know where you don't have to do any of the house admin either you, know, you just rock up and enjoy the environment 
um, and then and then go home. And I think there's lots of different ways to be living your ideal self in this moment rather than having to wait. You know, yes. the sadness that comes with one day, oh, if X, then Y, you know, when I'm earning such and such, when I'm, you know, when I've got 10,000 followers on Insta, I'll feel so much better about myself. I mean, goodness, let's, let's, you know, that's the opposite of the plus 10 and that's the opposite of self-approval right now. Um, yeah, so I think leading with your emotional goal is a really useful way of, of helping you navigate the, um, the immediacy of life, you know, the, the, this week, next week, next month, this next year. Are there different types of inner critics or is our inner critic the same? Oh, I think we have, I think this propensity for, for lots of different versions of our, our inner thoughts and how they play out. Um, I, for one, you know, I've told you about my grumpy fairy and I've also got kind of the cheeky chimp as well. He just likes to, my cheeky chimp is more playful um, and imaginative and really likes to like play pranks Mm-hmm. and tricks but on me it is not fun <laughs> like it really like tries to challenge me in different ways um there is a school of thought a, a psychological school of thought which is called um internal family systems which is not actually family it's not like father mother daughter it's um it's that we have different um parts of our psyche that play different roles and I think, you know, I was leading to this really early when I was talking about how we parent ourselves, because you can have an inner critic, but you could also have a compassionate self, mm. you know, or, or some people call it your inner cheerleader. It's doing this little rah-rah dance, you know, this cheerleader um, sing, sing song uh, as you're going through life. It's just that the inner critic is the loudest, you know, it's, it just mm. happens that we're, we're more in tune with or more readily susceptible to, to the negative stuff but by turning on our approach mindset we can get really fun with um with the with the more useful inner voices and that's exactly it you know I have a I have a parenting voice and it's really lovely and that's actually in the form of um somebody who I grew up with who did show me unconditional love and it was she was just an amazing kind of guardian angel as it were so I've got her with me I've got um my you know a best friend who's just got my back the whole time she's in my head as well like what would she say she'd be like oh my god I'm so proud of you sister that's what she would say um and so I think to think about not just the inner critic but the different voices we have with the different parts of our psyche and how they play out and who's sometimes we can be parent sometimes we can be a child in a role sometimes we can be a you know a grumpy teenager and there are lots of different things that influence the relationship dynamics that we have with others mm-hmm. and there are lots of things that influence our relationship with ourselves as well what is the very first thing we should do when we hear our inner critic oh there are so many things okay the very first thing is listen out for the should and the must Okay, I think that's the most obvious type of phrasing that, that the inner critic would use. And instead of saying, I should go to the gym, you could reframe that. And it's not about, I don't like toxic positivity. I've written about that before. So it's not like, um, you know, uh, an affirmation as such, because sometimes mm-hmm. they don't really work. But it's really about just replacing the word should with, I would like to. 
I'd like to go to the gym this in three weeks this time, uh, this week. Or um, I would like to go to, um, I really look forward to going to the gym. Now that might be a lie because really nobody really looks forward to going to the gym unless you're a PT, perhaps. But um, what, or I deserve to go to the gym you know, three times this week, because I know how much I will benefit from that. I know how much people around me will benefit from that. So it's thinking about the language, they're replacing that should or ought or must with something that's a little bit more either neutral, which is just I will, or more pleasant and enticing. Ah, oh, like as if you were going to go, like I would say like, oh, I think cake is delicious. I would love to eat three slices of cake this week. I said, you know, um, I would love to get to the gym three times this week. That would be great. But, you know, I'm not going to hold myself to that. If I only go once, that is good enough. You know, and just thinking about it now makes me feel like a better person because I know that that would be a good thing for me to do. And it kind of sets you up then in a realistic way to, to taking action. If you can reframe your thoughts away from the should and the must to the I will or I want to or thinking ahead to the benefits of doing that one task you know I know once I've been to the gym I'm going to feel really good about myself again you're looking at the emotional goal to help motivate you rather than fear or anxiety or the horrible stuff or beating yourself up like I must get to the gym I'm terribly bad I'm so bad I'm so this I'll say that but actually I really want to go to the gym because I'm going to feel so much better about myself by Friday is there anything else in the moment that you would recommend? Because I know you said initially there are so many things. So do you remember earlier on I mentioned the um, the inner critic finding mm-hmm. you at the most darkest, quietest spaces? You know, if you find yourself fretting at 3am in the morning and there's very little you can do, you don't really want to get out of bed and write a journal, although you could. Um, presencing is a really useful exercise. And that simply is. Reminding yourself that no matter where your inner critic takes you to the worry and the drama and kind of the, you know, you might feel your heart palpitating and you might feel the the worry begin to take over your body. In that moment, remember that it's just a thought. Your brain has thousands of thoughts a day and night. Mm -hmm. And that instead of having that thought, you could choose to have a different thought. And what helps me to find the gap and and choosing how to think and choosing what to think next is to presence myself in that moment. And it might be to touch something physical like the duvet on the bed. And I remind myself literally this, it's so simple, but reminding yourself sometimes can take practice too. You might find that you've been, you spent 30 minutes going down this horrible negative cycle of thinking and feeling and arguments with people or finishing off stuff or saying things you really wish you'd said instead or, you know, whatever it might be that's making you feel nervous at the time or, or playing out something that hasn't happened yet, bringing yourself back to the moment can be a struggle. So I don't expect you to be able to do this within the first time um, you, that you try, but eventually you'll get used to it and it will become natural practice for you to presence yourself and say, okay, well, here I am right now and I'm safe. I'm in my bed. It's silent, it's quiet, or you know, hopefully it's a safe and, and silent space. I have everything I need right now. And you can feel the duvet. You can feel the warmth of the the blankets or duvet on your skin. You can feel the weight of your head in your pillow. Um, If you wear an eye mask, you can kind of play with your eye mask and feel feel the sensations of that on your face. It's just to come into that moment and then feel your breath as it 
comes into your body and as it leaves your body and focus on your tummy as it's rising and falling as your breath comes in and as your breath comes out and this can take a matter of seconds really to remember to do you can be in that space for as long as you try you know you, you can stay there for as long as it takes until you fall asleep but your mind will wander that is just what minds do and then remembering ah I can bring this back. I remember what Jess was saying and Scarlett, they were talking about presencing. I'm going to present myself in this moment where I am safe. A bad thing hasn't happened or isn't happening now. And I can breathe here safely. Mm -hmm. I also end the podcast with two questions. The first being, Jess, what is your favourite quote or the mantra you live by? It changes. It changes. And at the moment I'm living by, if not now, then when? And I'm loving it. I'm loving it. It's like that's just preventing me from procrastinating and self-sabotaging and all the things I want to get on with. And I've been so productive the past couple of months. Um, it's just been really lovely to be in that space. I'm giving myself plus 10 anyway. Even if I were procrastinating, I'd be giving myself plus 10, right? Um, so, yeah, if not now, then when? And it's also a lyric to a Tracy Chapman song, and I absolutely adore Tracy Chapman. What books or podcasts on this subject would you recommend to our audience? On this subject, Kristen Neff has written about self-compassion, and her website has loads of free resources. So I would definitely point any interested listeners her way. She has a couple of other books as well, um, Self-Compassion, and I think her most recent one's Fierce Compassion. Um, I think that's the most helpful book I've read recently that I would um, recommend. I'm just looking at my very large book. Um, also, if you're into understanding more about yourself, which I think we, you know, and your listeners definitely will be, is doing a little bit more digging around um, on your, trying to find out more about your personality, your personality profiling. So I'm a psychologist. Um, there's one tool I love in particular, it's called the Enneagram. Um, and I won't even try and spell that for you, but um, uh, it's uh, a nine, it, basically there are nine different profiles and you, you, it's blended. So you're not labeled, you're not put in a box. I don't really like to be restrictive or restricted by profiling tools but it's a really curious one and there are loads of books and personality types um so you know go out and find one that works for you but definitely start with um the enneagram it's fascinating um for my own book it will be coming out in september um and that's it's called the super helper syndrome a survival guide for compassionate people and I've written that from the heart and from experience of having come across so many people who love to help others but sometimes often, to the detriment of their own well-being. You know, they put their needs last and they don't really instigate boundaries. And there are so many things that happen as a result of that. Thank you so much, Jess, for coming on to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast. It was wonderful to have you. It feels like a personal therapy session. <laughs> I'm eternally grateful for. So thank you. And I know that our listeners are going to love it as well. Fantastic. Thank you for having me today.
Thank you for listening to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast. I am your host, Scarlett V. Clark, award-winning founder and CEO of Smart Girl Tribe, the UK's number one female empowerment organization, host of this top-rated podcast, the Smart Girl Tribe podcast, and author. You are my community, my family, so come and follow along for more female empowerment and personal development in our private Facebook group, the Smart Girl Tribe Society, or on Twitter or Instagram at Smart Girl Tribe.